Hello my friends and welcome back to Garda Goes Geek. Today is the second episode of season two and we are going to be discussing the merit of shows created purely to sell toys and why there may be more to them than we think. More than meets the eye in fact. It only exists to sell toys! I'm sure we've all heard that at some point or another. Um, maybe not said in quite such a sarcastic tone as the one I just decided to use. Um, but definitely we've all heard it as a detraction of certain shows, certain properties. Um, sometimes shows and properties that we quite like. Now, it's true that a lot of television, especially children's television... Um, and a lot of films, a lot of movies have associated toy lines. Um, but we're not just discussing the things that were that have a toy line associated with them without that necessarily being the first focus, but things that are created purely to sell toys. Oh, what do I mean by that? Uh, we'll take, for example, something uh, like Jurassic Park. Jurassic Park is a very prominent film series, and... Obviously, the first film came with a lot of merchandise. Um, not just toys, but also lunchboxes, duvet covers. Um, you know, ev everything you could imagine had the Jurassic Park label slapped on it. Um, but uh, including the popular toy line, which I think was made by Kenner. Now... Even then, though, no one would ever argue that Jurassic Park was made to sell toys. The film had been in production for well over two years. It was a, a dream project of uh, Steven Spielberg to work on. And it was based on an award-winning and very popular book by Michael Crichton. So the actual merit of Jurassic Park is it's a film adaptation of a book which was then used to sell merchandise. A similar sort of thing can be said for Star Wars. Uh, Star Wars was a film project that obviously then got toys associated with it, but it was not originally created to sell toys. The argument would be, then, for things that were created to sell toys, um, or cartoons that were made for a toy line, so things such as He-Man and the Masters of the Universe, uh, My Little Pony, um, Transformers, uh, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, uh, not just cartoons but also live action shows, things like Power Rangers or anime like Digimon and Pokemon. Um, so they get dismissed in a lot of popular culture, a lot of popular media with the phrase, oh it only exists to sell toys, it's just a kid's show to sell toys. Does it matter? The thing is, I don't think that's true. So, the first thing we should probably discuss with that is why, how uh, shows exist to sell toys. Now, there are limits in America, especially, where most of these shows originate, most of the toy lines originate. There are limits on the amount of advertising that can be done to children's television. Um, during children's television, and specifically adver advertisements towards children, geared towards children. Now, that there, there, there are currently laws in place um, that were put in in the 90s and the 2000s 
There were more laws before then, uh, which I think originated in the 60s and the 70s. However, as part of a, a national deregulation of marketing um, that the Ronald Reagan political administration undertook in the early 80s, one of the things that they did ease off was the um, regulations regarding advertisements towards children. What that meant was you could now have television shows that were more designed almost as commercials for new products. And obviously a lot of the shows in the 80s that then formed a lot of popular children's programming are shows that we associate with this. Um, obviously the mainstays that are still known of today, things like Transformers, G.I. Joe, He-Man and the Masters of the Universe, but also things that maybe we don't remember as much, like Brave Stars, GoBots, uh, Rainbow Bright. <laughs> Plenty of them. Oh, God, there's so many. Um, you know, all, Thundercats. All these things came with associated toy lines. And the cartoons basically existed to sell the merchandise, to drive the toy sales. Um, they were deliberately advertised at children. Um, the, you know, the shows were targeted as children. The, the adverts for the toys would run alongside the cartoon, sometimes even be included as part of the cartoon. Um, I'm pretty sure I remember watching as a kid some episodes of Transformers that featured people playing with the toys in the bumper segments for the advert breaks. So it's a definite thing that existed. Um... So that was part of it. The other part of it was um, the merchandise boom that had originated with Star Wars. Now, Star Wars merchandise came after the film. The, there was not a lot of lead-up time um, getting the toy contracts and stuff um, arranged until the film was pretty much in the midst of shooting. Um, so you ended up with Star Wars shooting it being like six months away from release before the final contracts with Kenner were signed. I mean, before that, a lot of contract, a lot of other toy companies passed on Star Wars. Mattel, Hasbro, and a few others all passed on the idea of making Star Wars toys. But what happened was when Kenner did it, um, they created the Star Wars, the first line of Star Wars figures. And they made the Star Wars figures smaller. They introduced a new standard for toys at the time. A lot of uh, toys that existed were larger toys. So things like the original G.I. Joe, which was a 12-inch doll, essentially, action figure. Um, sort of the same sort of size as things like Barbie. Now, also a lot of toys like that, like the G.I. Joe, like Barbie, would market the one figure and the idea being that you buy more accessories for the figure um you wouldn't necessarily buy loads of the same toy with star wars it was different you didn't just want to sell luke skywalker you wanted to sell luke skywalker and han solo and princess leia and darth vader and obi-wan kenobi etc so what they did was they made the figure smaller um they went for a three and three quarter inch scale um which became sort of a standard for the market for a long time and what that meant was as well as selling the toys the actual action figures 
you could sell not just um, accessories. Well, you didn't really sell accessories with them. You didn't change costumes or do weapon packs, for example, like you would with something like the large G.I. Joe figures. What you could sell instead were playsets. So you could get playsets of the Moss Eisley Cantina. You could get an X-Wing fighter. You could get a TIE fighter. You could get a Death Star playset. You could get the Millennium Falcon. You could get big sets. And obviously that led to such a change in the way the toy industry worked. Now we weren't just selling... We're not just going to sell you a hero and accessories. We're going to sell you the heroes and all their allies and the bad guys and all of their troopers and subordinates. And then you can sell all these play sets and vehicles that you can play with. And it changed the way that kids played with toys. Before Star Wars, children usually sort of... I mean, children in the 50s and 60s and early 70s would play with, like, the one toy that they had. There'd be, there'd be like the one treasured toy or they'd have a collection of toys that they'd inherited from like different birthdays or charity shops or giveaways or or hand-me-downs from older siblings etc and they'd play with them all together and it'd be an imagination thing like oh you had a bucket of army men but you also had a big figure and things like that sort of similar to how Andy in Toy Story plays with his toys he has a collection of toys which are all from different things and from different ages that he's had, things that he's held on to, but he still plays with. Star Wars changed that. Star Wars really did change that. And now you had, between that merchandising boom from Star Wars and the deregulation that came in the early 80s, you now had toy companies realising they could produce a whole toy line and sell you everything associated with that toy line they could sell you the play sets they could sell you the heroes they could sell you the villains they could sell you vehicles and everything else and that changed the toy industry but the thing with that is as well as changing the toy industry you then have to find a way to market toys like that and of course with the deregulation the easiest way of marketing things like that became a cartoon so the first major new product line um that revitalized the industry and changed it with a cartoon became he-man he-man and the masters of the universe now, He-Man and the Masters of the Universe was created by Mattel. Um, Mattel created these sort of... They were larger than the standard at the time. Um, this, I think it was early 81, 82 that He-Man came out. And the... Obviously, we'd had Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back. And a lot of other franchise... A lot of other toy companies were making action figures in the same sort of three three quarter inch size as star wars but star wars was still the major industry leader at this time under kenner so obviously other companies wanted to compete with that now the big ones at the time were hasbro and mattel mattel were first and they went with he-Man. 
Now, He-Man was a larger figure than the three and three quarter inch figures at the time. Um, I think it's about a five inch, five and a half inch figure. And it's got a very heroic style, by which I mean it's it's slightly deformed. It doesn't form a an exact physical proportions of like a human in the same way that the three and three quarter inch Star Wars figures were with like realistic head size. Like the head was larger, the hands were larger, the limbs were larger, it was muscular, and all the characters in He-Man were like that. Now he-Man did decide to go for, when Mattel were making He-Man, they decided to go for the whole thing. They got He-Man, they got his allies, they got Skeletor, they got Skeletor's um, minions, and they got the Castle Greyskull and everything. The, the, the plan was to market the whole lot and sell everything. Um, sell a whole new line to children. Now, the people who are behind He-Man um, have... You know, the people who were involved in Mattel at the time have actually said, yeah, this was... They were throwing everything at the wall, see what stuck. Um, they got, you know, a lot of very bizarre designs in there. Um, bizarre ideas. And essentially they were making things up on the spot. So when it came to selling the toys, um, they, they were pitching this new line to, you know, the, the major toy retailers at the time people who would buy these things and one of the main criticisms was well how will people know what's going on so one of the executives on the plan came up with well we're going to package a comic book with with the with the issues and this was created off the cuff it was the idea of yeah we'll we'll, we'll package a comic book with them because why not um, so the comic book would then tell you the story of He-Man and Skeletor and their world, Eternia, and, you know, all the characters. And that would be packaged with each of the, uh, toys. Now, this was revealed after they'd already, uh, been approved by several retailers. So then other retailers that they'd already, had already approved them said, well, you told us this was a figure for, like, ages five and up. So now, why, you know, kid, kids that age, they don't really read comic books. So how are we? How are they going to know what's what's going on? And the same executive again, off the cuff, was like, "Oh, did I not tell you about the two one-hour specials?" You know, they've openly discussed this. This is a matter of record that this stuff was made up on the spot. So as a result, they then got in touch with Filmation, and Filmation made, you know, the two early specials of He-Man and Masters of the Universe, which featured. A slightly different take than the comic books that were already coming with the figures and even though the figure line had launched and was a great success because it as i said it looked different from everything else that was on display the the cartoon definitely improved how well it sold um you know the the what was originally two one hour specials soon became a full series. The full series that went on for multiple seasons. Um, you then ev eventually got the spin off Shira and the Princess of Power when they decided to market to their girls line at the same time with a larger kind of doll figure with hair play and everything like that. And he Masters of the Universe was a popular show. Like he man, it it's He Man and the Masters of the Universe, but. 
you know, everyone thinks of it as a boys' line. Like, they, I think they they said twenty percent of their audience was young girls, and that was before they launched Shira. You know, this uh, this is a popular thing at the time, and the cartoon was a big part of that. And the cartoon helped drive sales, so you got kids buying every figure, every figure, Battle Cat. Um, the accessories, the vehicles, the Castle Grayskull, everything. Also, around the same time, you had Hasbro doing a similar sort of thing. Uh, again, sort of early 80s, I think a little bit later than He-Man, where they did G.I. Joe. And again, with G.I. Joe, it was going for a relaunch of the line. They kept G.I. Joe in the three three-quarter inch scale. But going for a similar sort of let's let's revitalize an old line, let's bring it back, make it something good, because by this point the original G.I. Joes had been discontinued. So they were bringing it back and they came up with a jingle to go with the adverts and the cartoon. The commercials, I should say, not adverts. Um, for, for all my American listeners. <laughs> Sorry, I'm British. We use the wrong words or the right words. You know, we invented the language. <laughs> now what this meant was that they had they had the cartoon and the jingle went with the advert and the cartoon and they were bringing gi joe back and the cartoon became an essential part of that merchandising push to push gi joe and what the new gi joe was and again, they I think they did the right thing by keeping it in a smaller scale because with G.I. Joe, the effort was not just on the figures but on also the characters, the transports, the, the play sets, the vehicles. You know, I think they did a very large toy, for example, which was a seven-foot-long aircraft carrier which sold for $110 in 1984. So <laughs> imagine what something like that would cost nowadays. And again, it was the, again we sell the whole thing. Now with GI Joe, I think they came about just before the deregulation changed because their argument was, well, we'll get the comic book to tell the story. Now they linked with Marvel Comics and got a Marvel Comics license with them to do this. Um, now Marvel had been licensing comics already; they were already publishing a quite well loved and well regarded Star Wars comic, and had been since 1977. The licensing for G.I. Joe became a new thing. And it was like, well, we're going to have a G.I. Joe comic. And knowing that they couldn't necessarily use the cartoon to advertise the toys, it became, well, the cartoon is going to advertise the comic. Of course, it didn't. It, it did advertise the toys. But the way around it was by saying, well, no, the cartoon's advertising the comic. Obviously, there were two very different beasts. The comic, for example, written by Larry Hammer um, at Marvel, featured death. You know, characters died. This was a war comic. It may have been G.I. Joe, um, but it wasn't quite as gung-ho and saccharine as the, the cartoon was. Um, He-Man and the Masters of the Universe, for example, had their own way of getting around the... Uh, the not allowed to advertise to kids by including morals in every episode. And it wasn't quite in the standard of like the old Sonic cartoons where you had like a Sonic says section at the end, which is quite heavily parodied um, 
at the time in the 90s and also right up till today, where it's like, hey, kids, drugs are bad, you know, that kind of thing at the end. What would... It would, there was elements of that, but it was more of a, a dedicated moral that would be throughout the episode where whatever the moral would be, even if the moral was something like drugs are bad, you'd have a character in with it throughout the episode using drugs and getting worse and worse or, or using some form of substance to upset their power to make to make them stronger and actually impacting them negatively and then that would lead to the lesson at the end of the episode so you would have more of a it wouldn't be a direct speaking to camera moral uh in the same way as some later shows i think yeah captain planet's another good example of the kind of forced moral at the end of the show um instead it would be the characters discussing that between themselves but that was their way around it. G.I. Joe's was that they were advertising the comic. He-Man was that... No, it's a, it's, it's a moral. It's a, an educational show. It's about conscience and, and good morals and how to live your life perfectly. And, you know, that was their way of kind of getting around the parents. Eventually, the, the kind of the licensing thing went away and you were able to get more definitive toy adverts by sort of like 83, 84. Um... But yeah, it's very interesting how it started. Those are the two the two big ones. He-Man and the Masters of the Universe from Mattel and G.I. Joe from Hasbro. Um, the biggest, you know, and this sort of carried on. You then had, for example, like My Little Pony. Now, the first My Little Pony um, was already a big seller for girls. Um, you know, the first line of My Little Pony was selling very, very well. And then they decided to make the cartoon specials and I think eventually films regarding the My Little Pony characters. But they came out when the line was already selling well. And again, this is sort of sort of the same with um, He-Man and G.I. Joe. The, the toys were selling by the time the cartoon debuted. and But it then became the standard for, as, as He-Man and G.I. Joe and My Little had shown... Every sort of show, every sort of toy line did better with a cartoon. To the point that you start getting more of them. So, Thundercats, My Little Pony, Brave Stars, Centurion, Rainbow Bright, Strawberry Shortcake. Every new toy line start, sort of begat a new cartoon. To the point that for a lot of them, the cartoon almost went into pre-production around the same time that they started doing the toys. This wasn't necessarily um, a completely American phenomenon. Um, a lot of Japanese shows, for example, do very similar things. Um, for example, the Super Sentai franchise, which I'm a big fan of and will come up again later on in this topic, which is why it's being discussed now, um, worked quite heavily with Bandai to design its mechas, its weapons, its suits, so that everything could have a a toy feel and would translate well to the toy line. Um, you know, and other similar shows that they were working on at the time. So, you know, because Bandai didn't just work on the live-action Super Sentai franchise, it also worked with a lot of anime studios, which is how you got things that, that later became adapted into the America, into America, like Voltron. You know, the Voltron show, Go Lion, the design of Go Lion 
was designed to work with a toy, to work with the five transforming lions that would turn into a giant robot, and how that could work as a toy, but then also work in the animation. So it wasn't necessarily a new thing. But it it became something that carried on and became something that it was known that, if, oh, if you're launching a toy line, you need a cartoon to go with it. Now, one of the first big toy lines that became packaged with the cartoon almost as like a built-in part of the the whole release um, was Transformers um, in 1984. Now, Transformers originates from a couple of separate toy lines in Japan, most notably Diaclone and Microman, I believe. Or Mic Microchange, sorry. Um, now, the toys from the Microchange line and the Diaclone line were, again, taken by Hasbro, imported to America, and they were created, um, again, using Marvel Comics. They went to Marvel Comics, Jim Shooter, Dennis O'Neill, and Bob Budiansky, um, more importantly, Bob Budiansky, are important for creating the, the core characters, the core concept of Transformers, and finding a way to market it. Um, that was then, an animation was then put in production, as well as the Marvel comic, which allowed everything to, to release, um, almost at the same time, so that you end up with the, the cartoon series, and the toy line all releasing in 1984 and selling really well transformers became one of the one of the best selling toys in the world in the 80s um and it was definitely a popular line um the focus on like the original core 18 transformers um in the comics and then gradually adding more and more characters to that line um, to allow for new toys. Now, what that meant was some characters got added to the cartoon or added to the comic in a way that, you know, they were added when the toys became available for them. So, for example, Jetfire, uh, the Dinobots, Devastator and the Constructicons all became these prominent characters who might appear for an episode or two or a few issues of the comic book to sort of hype up their new release as a toy. Uh, again, the next one that was sort of that sort of followed in that line and really hit the big time um, was uh, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Now, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles was already a a very well selling comic book, considering it was an indie comic book. It was one of the fastest growing independent comic books. Now, the the original issue was published by, like, two guys, uh, Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird, in their front room. <laughs> you know, they, they they worked on this. Their studio was the house that they shared. And they created this comic book. They published it. They distributed it to local retailers. The retailers sold out. They asked for more and more. And eventually, Turtles became this, this sort of underground hit. Um a marketing guy contacted them. He then started shopping around to it was like this is awesome. This is we can we can make money off of this and he started chasing down um productions for toys. Now when it came to when they finally got a, a production partner which was uh, Playmates Toys, um Playmates wanted 
to go straight ahead with the uh, television show. So they came up with a TV miniseries of five episodes um, to help launch the line. And what they did with that is they also revitalised the characters from the comic. So the toy line of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and the cartoon for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles have very, very little in common with the comic that it's based on. The comic was very dark and gritty, whereas the um, the TV show was very much designed for kids. Um, the turtles were all given more distinct personalities, more distinct characters. Um, there were more villains introduced, more supporting characters introduced, and it allowed it to develop into something that became a smash hit. Like, as popular as things like He-Man and G.I. Joe and Transformers had been... Turtles blew them all out of the water um, when it launched in 1987. Turtle Mania became this enormous thing. Um, which, you know, I mean, I, I was I was born in 1986. I, I missed He-Man, Transformers. I sort of saw them when they were repeated, and I was vaguely aware of them when I was a kid. Like, some of my friends' older brothers had He-Man, so, of course, my friends had them because they'd been passed down and stuff like that. And I know I've definitely seen episodes of things like Masters of the Universe or the original Transformers, but they weren't, they weren't really my things. Turtles was one of my things. I grew up... Um, you know, I was a kid in the late 80s, early 90s when T Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles was a big thing. And then the next big, massive toy boom, which was associated with a TV show, um, was the next one that I was interested in, which was Power Rangers. Now, Power Rangers um, incorporates footage from the Super Sentai series in Japan. Told you we'd get back to that. Now, Super Sentai is a show about transforming heroes who fight monsters uh usually a monster of the week and there's a giant robot involved with the, that they use um so that became the basis for power rangers now super sentai has been going since 1975 um Several people in America had tried to get it made over the years, including Stan Lee at Marvel Comics. Uh, Marvel Comics had been involved in a couple of early Super Sentai series, and Stan Lee had tried to shop it around to get that show made in America, to get that show popular in America in the early 80s. Um, his, I think his boss at Marvel Television, Mar Margaret Loach, yes, it's weird to think of Stan Lee having a boss, um, but yes, he did. Uh, Margaret Loesch, uh had, again, she'd been responsible. She'd tried to get it shopped around. She then got the job at, as uh, by the early 90s, she was the head of television at Fox Kids. Now, Chaim Saban, who is the name most closely associated with Power Rangers, um, he had become aware of Super Sentai in 1984 while he was over there for the Olympics. Chaim Saban was a big name in children's TV, more notable as a composer. He'd worked on a lot of television jingles, um, for example, Inspector Gadget, Rainbow Bright, and a few others. Uh, Inspector Gadget was probably his, his biggest success. That one's an infectious earworm. Um, so he, again, had seen... Power, uh, Super Sentai. He became a big fan of the Super Sentai franchise. He met with executives at Toei who were producing the Super Sentai series uh, alongside Bandai and he got 
rights if he could sell it outside of America. He carried on for like eight years until he eventually had a meeting at Fox Kids with Margaret Loesch and she responded and said, I know this show. They managed to get it done. Um, and they actually did something different with Power Rangers in that the marketing was for, you know, the goal of Haim Saban and Margaret Loesch was to get the show made. So Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, the show, was what they wanted to make. But in order to get it approved for affiliate stations in America so that the, the show could actually be shown on television, they obviously, obviously they were working on a toy line to help promote the show, but they gave the affiliates a right to get some of the toy merchandising money, the merchandising profits. That was pretty much unheard of at the time. I think that was a, that was first for television in America. And so the toy sales now became more prominent and, again, led to this massive boom. Power Rangers was the biggest thing in the world for, like, three, four years, even when it transitioned into Power Rangers Zeo. The toys were still one of the top sellers. And, all you know, Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, the actual series under that name, the costumes that for that name, lasted for three years. Um, in Japan, Super Sentai changes casts and concepts and suits and robots every three, every year. For Power Rangers, they only changed the robots, you know, which made it more expensive to produce in America until they eventually started changing the the suits as well. Uh, with Power Rangers Zeo, and uh, since then they've adopted the Sentai model. Eventually they recycled the cast every year as well, um, but at first they didn't. Um, and that became something huge and allowed Bandai America, who was a, a more, you know, Bandai is a huge name in Japan. Bandai America was not a big name in the American toy market, to become this huge contender um, for toys. But it was the show Power Rangers that was the big hit um, and allowed the toys to become a big hit. So people think, even though even though the show was the original goal of the production executives behind it, Haim Saban and Margaret Loesch, Power Rangers is again another one of those that's dismissed as, oh, it was only created to sell toys. And it's like, yeah, it was, in a certain respect. And then... You know, after Power Rangers again, sort of the late nineties, the the big one that I remember was the the transition to anime from Japan, uh, things like Pokemon and Digimon and Yu-Gi-Oh, and they were created to sell games. Um, in for the examples of Pokemon and Yu-Gi-Oh, trading card game, but also video games and digital pets. Um, digital pets for Digimon, uh, Pokemon had obviously the, the Pokemon games on Game Boy. Uh, there were Digimon games on the PlayStation as well. So it was, again, this this idea of cartoons created to sell things. Um, and there were others at the time as well. I mean, Pokemon and Digimon are two of the, the ones that have endured the most as franchises, along with Yu-Gi-Oh! Um, but there were ones like uh, Monster Rancher, I remember. The game was forgettable. I don't think I ever played it. But I remember watching the Monster Rancher anime. And quite enjoying it. Um, there were card captors, which was a more um, one focused more towards girls, um, but it got adapted because it had a card game that went along with it, um, which they were trying to sell in America. I don't think it became quite as successful in the West, but again, I remember watching the card captor anime. So 
it's not a new thing. The whole idea of, um, you know, shows being created to sell toys. But does that mean they don't have any merit beyond selling toys? I don't think so. So I'm going to take a more deep dive discussion into uh, the merits of some of these franchises. Um, now, obviously, I'm going to stick with the franchises I'm more familiar with, the ones that have had a, a bit more of an impact on my life so I can speak a bit more from my own experience. Um, but many people out there will have similar views and appearances to me, few views and experiences to me, on the shows that influence them, uh, whether that is He-Man, whether it's Thundercats, whether it's um, even more, even less well-known ones like Mighty Max or Street Sharks or even toy lines that maybe didn't have a cartoon. Like, for example, um, you know, Boglins, I know, is one that's uh, become a bit of a, a bit of a meme on the internet. There's a YouTuber I follow, Jim Sterling, who has become quite open about their love for Boglins as a franchise. Um, and there's plenty of other toy lines. I mean, toys have always been big business. And, you know, the the way these franchises launched toys, toy lines, meant that there became... The toy market becomes very, very cluttered. You know, I work in a toy shop. Uh, I work in one of Britain's leading toy shops. And the range of toys that exist nowadays is baffling. And there's so many, and they sell so many different things. Um, you know, there's role play toys, there's action figures, there's play sets. There's so many. And to the point that... Some are forgettable and some are gone within a few years. And some last and endure. And with streaming as well being a thing nowadays. Some come back uh, almost cyclically. Um, you know, so I'm, I'm going to comment on the ones that impacted me. Um, but there, there are plenty others. Some that are still going now. Um, some that originated well after my time, like Ben 10. Um, that have these impacts so why do these shows appeal i mean i've already discussed um sort of the morals that came with them um i know for a lot of people um some of those morals became very very important to them i'm not just talking about the obvious and easily parodied ones like um you know, don't take drugs or don't take alcohol or don't follow strange men to cars and things like that. But even ones that are maybe more subconscious, um, some that work as allegory or metaphor within the work itself, in that you should be, you know, it's, it's your duty to be honest and loyal and to be a good friend and to stand up for what you think is right. And a lot of this stuff is all over children's television, and it's 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 in comic books as well. It's the, it's in films. It's the things we look for in heroes. 
And a lot of these shows focused on heroes and heroes fighting villains, villains who were, you know, could be author authoritarian or cruel or, you know, in, in whatever ways they could be evil. And then you'd have heroes that would oppose them and stand up against them and, you know, criticize them and say why what they were doing was wrong and, or heroes that would look after the environment or things like that. And that leaves an impact on people, even if it's only a subconscious impact. I mean, a five-year-old isn't going to recognize the, you know, the, the, the metaphor in uh, a changing existence of you know on on how to how to remain solid with your morals even when things change around you that's prevalent in something like power rangers or transformers when the cast changes but they are going to remember those things so a good example um to sort of explain the sort of thing i mean is the original transformers the movie now Transformers was not, by any stretch of the imagination, the only 80s series to get a, a film, to get a film that premiered in cinemas. There were there were loads. He-Man he and She-Ra got one. Um, the Care Bears got them. The um, Rainbow Bright got one. My Little Pony got a couple. G.I. Joe got a couple. Um, Brave Stars got a couple. There, there, there were a few. And but Transformers tends to be the only one that's really sort of remembered and recognized and held up all these years later. And I think there's a reason for that. Now, Transformers the movie is notable to a lot of people because it was it was very clearly a cynical toy commercial like to an adult that's that's very clearly what it is um within like the opening 20 minutes of the film and a 90 minute film but within like the first half an hour definitely by the end of act one pretty much every major hero in the autobots and a few of the major villains are gone forever <laughs> And uh, some of them, some of them don't even get a, a glorious death. For example, they're not, they're not triumphantly fighting to the last or anything. They're just, you know, we see their their corpses. But yeah, um, you know, kids were going into that movie and watching their favorite toys die. You know, the characters that they identified with: Brawn, Prowl, Ratchet, Ironhide, um, Starscream. Thundercracker, Megatron, Ramjet, um, Optimus Prime, all die in this film. I think there's a Wheeljack dies. There's very few of the original Transformers line that survive to the end of the film. I think Bumblebee and Jazz are the two main ones, and the Dinobots, so Grimlock and the rest, survive until the end. Most of the rest are, are killed off. And some of the villains as well, like I said, Thundercracker um, is killed, Megatron's killed, Starscream's killed, the Insecticons all die. And it's like, that is impactful to a child. 
And the reason it was done is was because Hasbro was about to launch a brand new line of Transformers. Um, so they had to create a story that would explain what had happened to the originals, why um, the new designs looked more more science fiction-y, uh, and that was done by transitioning the series ready for season three of the cartoon to follow. So, you know, the new Autobots, like I said, have more science fiction-y designs, so do the new Decept Decepticons. Um, so it introduces a whole new line of characters and eliminates most of the originals. And it's definitely a brave, very, very bold move, you know, to do this. Um, you know, Transformers was an ensemble piece. There were a lot of characters. And the thing is, with anything that has a lot of characters, is any one of those characters can be someone's favourite. And as much as you might gravitate towards the leads, like, everyone liked Optimus Prime, for example. Everyone liked Bumblebee. Even some of the villains, everyone liked. Starscream and Megatron, for example, being the two prominent ones. Um, but, you know, Jazz, Wheeljack, they, Ratchet, Ironhide, they all had fans. And yet they were killed off. <laughs> um, and, yeah, I mean, it becomes hard to even go back to... For example, some of the original episodes of Transformers at that point, knowing that those characters are going to die 20 years down the line. You know, there was a 20-year time jump in the movie. So 20 years down the line, those characters are dead and replaced with completely new faces. And don't get me wrong, some of the new generation of Autobots were interesting. Um, you got Ultra Magnus, Springer, RC, um, Hot Rod... I'll come back to it in a minute. Um, Cup. You know, they were they were interesting characters. And there was a lot of references in their designs to things like Star Wars. Um, you know, RC had sort of like the, the Princess Leia hair buns. And she was notably the only woman on the team. Um, and then she was partnered with Springer, who was a bit more of a rogue Han Solo type. Um, and turned into a helicopter. Um, you know, a kind of futuristic-looking helicopter. Um, so they were definitely drawing parallels to something like Star Wars, which was more famous, and that was filling a gap that was needed. Um, and the third season of Transformers did shift, in, and through the movie, did shift into a more grandiose sci-fi spectacle. Like, it, it left Earth. They went to other planets uh, and things like that now. You know, you had Galvatron, who was the the lead villain, and he was obviously like a more advanced Megatron, but turned into um, a space. You know, flew around in a spaceship and transformed into uh, something that looked, you know, whereas the original Megatron transformed into a, a handgun, Galvatron turned to like a sci-fi cannon on legs. So yeah, there was a definite, definite transition. Towards something bigger and more grandiose. Um, but the, the plot of the film is essentially the hero's journey. It follows Hot Rod as he becomes the new leader of the Autobots. He goes from being this, this brash and impulsive kid to 
learning about responsibility and like i said becoming the leader of the autobots he becomes rodimus prime um a name that's a bit more <laughs> mocked in the modern age um but it's it's an interesting film and that film has a sort of cult status and is remembered now in a way that a lot of its contemporaries aren't you know the first transformers film has had multiple re-releases over the years multiple new editions throughout the years it's been released on dvd it's been released on blu-ray i think i none of the others have i don't think the gi joe movies have had a dvd release i don't think my little pony has um maybe maybe gem and the holograms i think might be one of the other ones and again i think that's also owned by hasbro uh, so yeah it's it puts it in an interesting quandary and it becomes one of those where transformers is essentially a war narrative um between the autobots and the decepticons but watered down in a way that it's more appropriate for children but because they're robots you can have them die you can have them get injured which you they weren't willing to do with hasbro weren't willing to do with gi joe um as i discussed earlier they weren't willing to do that with the gi joe cartoon the gi joe characters never died the transformers could and the 1986 movie proved that. And it had an impact on people. It had an impact on kids seeing their favourite characters die. But at the same time, it did a lot to create character for these new Transformers. And to endear them to an audience. And to show that they can still change and do what's right. Even when everything is insurmountable. You know, these these young heroes can rise up to the challenge that meets them, to, to oppose, you know, the enemies of Galvatron and Unicron, because it's right to do that. Not, they're not just fighting because, you know, that's what they do. They're fighting because it's right to fight, to oppose that evil. To, to unify them all. The phrase, until all are one, is a, a Transformers phrase. You know, until all people are recognised as equal. You know, until they're all together again. It's, yeah. There's a lot of positives to it. And... You know, losing a lot of the main cast didn't necessarily go over well. Um, you know, for example, Rodimus Prime never got the impact with kids that Optimus did, ever. Um, to the point that Optimus Prime eventually came back in the cartoon. They wrote him back in. Um, because the attempt to, you know, as much as the Transformers film worked... And the impact it had worked. It also generated backlash. And it a lot of kids were hurt. There were complaints. You know not physically hurt. Emotionally hurt. By what had happened. You know there were complaints. And things like that. So. But the Transformers film itself. can Has imparted. Morals. It has things that 
people can look at it and go, yeah, that helped shape me in a way. You know, for me, I do that with the Power Rangers film. Um, to a certain extent, Power Rangers film, I I recognize all its flaws. I recognize it's not a great film, but I love that film, like unashamedly love it. It's not a guilty pleasure. I am very happy to share my love of Power Rangers. I I think it's a great franchise, and it's definitely a franchise that had a huge impact on me growing up. And the film came out in nineteen ninety five. I want to say ninety five, ninety six. And, you know, that film came, it was 95, because it came not long after there was a change in the main cast. Again, in a similar way to Transformers, some of the main heroes left and were replaced. Um, and the new heroes rose up and the existing heroes stayed and transitioned, like one of them became the new team leader. And... Obviously, this was all done to accommodate behind-the-scenes shenanigans, which I found out about years later, um, while also fitting the existing footage that they were using. But you don't find you don't realise that when you're a kid. What you see is some of your favourite heroes leaving and new heroes coming. But you can still end up liking those new heroes on their own merits, and then those were the heroes that were in the film, the new ones. Rocky, Adam, and Aisha were the new Power Rangers in the film. And the film, I think, helped me love those new characters more. You know, they have some good lines, some good moments in that film. Adam especially. Adam became one of my favourite rangers off the back of the film because he was funny. And he was played by Johnny Young Bosch, who's gone on to have this amazing career in anime voice work. Um, You know, less so much in physical acting. But he is, again... It, it's very well deserved. The actor was brilliant. And and obviously that wasn't the first time the cast of Power Rangers had changed. Um, the sixth ranger, Tommy, had come in and left a couple of times um, in his transition from the Green Ranger to the White Ranger. You know, he'd lost his powers a couple of times in the series. Again, due to behind-the-scenes stuff or you know the they ran out of the he was killed off the green ranger was killed off in the original series u ranger that they were adapting footage from but then saban commissioned toei to produce brand new footage purely for the american power rangers so they brought the green ranger back um so they had to come up with a reason why he came back and then obviously he lost his powers again and so on but again you learn all this years later i, I learned all this as an adult some of you may be finding this out for the first time now. Um, but I do think it showed that they that you could you could remain with a solid it's hard to explain, but you could remain with a solid core despite the changes all around you. And then the Power Rangers movie itself, they fight a brand new villain. Um this villain is far more threatening um, because of the difference differences between films and television. There's some things he does which are far more threatening than anything we've kind of seen on the TV show at that point. Like he brainwashes all the parents in the city of Angel Grove and 
tells them to go and leap to their doom, tells them to die, essentially. And the kids, there's there's a whole group of kids who originally are like, um, you know, celebrating the fact that their parents aren't around and they're running amok and doing whatever they, they want because they can. Um, shortly before the city starts getting attacked. And the one child who's been sort of investigating this the slime that the uh, Ivan Ooze is using to control the parents. Um, he manages to rally them round because it's the right thing to do. They've got to save their parents, otherwise they're all going to die. And of course, no parent wants their, no child wants their parents to die. So they rush and they do their best to save the day. Um, and it's like that's a, a nice, a nice moral lesson right there. Um, but then even then, the Power Rangers themselves, they lose their power. They lose what makes them the Power Rangers. So they go and to they go across the galaxy to another planet to find this hidden power that they can use to fight Ivan Ooze. And while they're doing that, Zordon, their leader, is dying. Um, the Power Rangers themselves... They get told by a sage on this planet that the power, you know, they have power inside them already. It's something that makes them what they are. They have these animal spirits inside them. Now, the animal spirit idea is an adaptation of what the, the theme for the next season was. But it's still a nice idea that the way they translated it made it something more important. The creators put effort into it in the same way that the creators of the Transformers movie put effort into telling a good story first within the constraints of what they were being told to do. Ditto with the Power Rangers. It, there's a good story at play here. I mean, it's not it's not world shattering. It's not the you know the greatest story ever told or anything like that. But it is. There's definitely a story there for children to enjoy and it's like the message that they're showing of the strength that you need is inside you and you can use that to fuel your your quest to do the right thing you know you recognize that metaphor and that allegory years later but it definitely still has an impact on you if you want it to and for me, it did. You know, you have your own strength. You can use that to stand up, not just for yourself, but for others, and do the right thing. And yeah, that had a definite impact on me growing up. You know, I if I could get personal for a second, I didn't have the best childhood um you know my parents divorced um i was physically abused by um one of my step parents for a long time i was like i said like emotionally and physically very vulnerable so having heroes 
like the Power Rangers in fiction or the X-Men who I was reading in comics at the time or the Digidestined in Digimon that I was watching as well. It definitely had an impact. You know, seeing kids like the Digimon who are younger than me or about my age or teenagers like the Power Rangers because, you know, even though the actors were adults, the characters were teenagers. They weren't much older than me. And being told that they can do good things and change is possible and you can do what you need to do gave me a lot of strength and helped me to It eventually is what helped me to deal with what was a very negative situation in my life. To give me the strength I needed to fight it. To oppose it. To challenge it. And I know I'm not the only person that that was true for. You know, there are people out there. You know, the, these actors and people involved in these shows they've spoken several times about how people have, have have read to them written to them and said you know you changed my life i had problems bonding with my my parents or or you know my dad walked out out on me and you know you were there for me when you know other things were going wrong you know these actors and creators and the toy executives and what have you all of these people share stories like this because it has a positive impact. Things that exist just to sell toys do more than just sell toys if they're done well. If they're done with the best efforts of the people involved, they can do some amazing things. You know, there are fan bases who will stand and fight for these shows, who support these shows, who who can name long lists of supporting characters who maybe only appeared in one episode in the case of things like Transformers or Turtles. And for every one of those characters, one of them will be someone's favourite character. You know, um... Skyfire in Transformers as as one guy's favourite character or, or you know, one person will be able to explain why Mondo Gecko is his favourite monster in um, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And that's good. That's good because it gives you... It gives you something positive. And I think a lot of kids need something positive. And for some kids like me who maybe didn't have the stability that they needed. Some of these things that are just toy commercials as cartoons or films can give us that stability that we need. Even when... What's in those shows and films isn't stable. Like in the example of Transformers the movie. Where the whole cast gets killed off and you get a brand new cast. 
the message at the core of that is still stable. The setting, the idea of, you know, the Autobots and the Decepticons is still stable. But it shows us that we can have change in a way that we can accept and we can deal with. You know, how the Power Rangers can lose their powers and gain new powers with new costumes and new zords every year. You know, and how that shows us that, yeah, things might not always be great. But you can always reinvent yourself and always change and make things better. And I think that's a very, very good thing. As I was saying, any character can become someone's favourite member of the ensemble. That can be more important as well for some kids who maybe have not seen themselves represented in that sort of show before. If they can identify with a character and think, oh, they're just like me, then that can become important as well. Um... And this is true of a lot of cartoons as well, not just the ones that are created to sell toys, um, but a lot of kids' cartoons and kids' media. And it's something that I think a lot of shows are making more effort with nowadays, especially. But, like, for example, again, to go back to my own experience with Power Rangers... You know, when I was a kid, I, as much as I liked characters like Jason the Red Ranger or Tommy the Green Ranger, I knew I wasn't a Jason or a Tommy. I'm not, I'm not a sporty kid. I wasn't a cool kid. I wasn't someone that people looked up to. Instead, a character that I could identify a lot more strongly with was Billy the Blue Ranger. Now, Billy was nerdy, he was bullied, he was very smart, but he was picked on almost constantly for it. And yet, with the Power Rangers, he had a group of friends around him who stuck by him and supported him. And with them, he also got to transform into a hero and save the world. And what kind of kid doesn't love that idea? You know, being part of a group and... You know, that uh, being part of a group of heroes. A similar sort of thing with Turtles. Um, again, as much as I loved a character like, you know, the fun-loving Michelangelo or the, the, you know, the sarcastic Raphael... If I was any of the turtles, I was Donatello. You know, I was I was the one interested in science and tech and how things worked and you know the bit bit nerdy. And again, seeing him as the hero, you know, realizing there was a character like that, a character like me that could be heroic.
you know, in the case of Power Rangers, having a, a strong group of friends around all the time. I, I'm not great at making friends. Never have been. You know, the ner nerdy kids don't, you know, it's a stereotype, but nerdy kids don't tend to have a lot of friends. We have a few very, very good friends. So, yeah, that I think that's an important part of any sort of these kids' shows as well. And, like I said, I'm just thinking in terms of myself, but, you know, Power Rangers and a lot of American shows, especially live-action shows, make an effort towards diversity casting. So, you know, as much as people will make the joke now that the, uh, you know, the Yellow Ranger was an Asian-American and the uh, the Black Ranger was an African-American, and it's like... Legitimately, they they did had not realized that at the time they did the casting. That was something they realized years later. Um, but yeah, as much as that is sort of mocked nowadays for kids at the time. I mean, could you imagine being an Asian American or an African American or well, not even Americans? You know, an Asian kid or a you know a a, a black kid who sees yourself. Sees a kid like you as part of this team of heroes that save the day every day, get to transform into superheroes and fight in a giant monster, you know, fight, fight in a giant robot to save the world. That's awesome. You know, that's the sort of representation that comic book movies are doing nowadays. You know. Wonder Woman, when it debuted in 2017, had this huge impact because women got, to see, you know, women and girls got to see a female superhero front and center on the the big screen. Um, but in terms of like as, as part of a team ensemble, you know, Power Rangers and other kids shows have been doing that for years. She-Ra is, is a prominent example. She was, you know, while there was obviously some contention over She-Ra in the 80s, the idea of a, a female superhero, she was, she was Prince Adam's brother. So she was as strong and as powerful as He-Man. But, you know, she was the hero of her own show. You know, the female Power Rangers and um, Zack, the Black Ranger, all got episodes where they were the lead. They they got the lead story in that episode. And that was that was good. That that leaves a positive impact for kids. You know, we saw the Power Rangers again, to use that example. We saw them you know, these were kids that they were cleaning up their local environment because it was the right thing to do. They were helping out kids because it was the right thing to do. They were running community events because it was the right thing to do. To go back to the to the example of the, the morals and the, you know, the impact that had. But we saw them, we saw them in a school setting as well. So we saw them, you know, talking about homework and science doing things for a science fair for example you know the value of 
you know, not just the the heroic, the sport and the exercise as well, but also eating right and the environment and things like that, that were at the core of the ideals of a show like that, that then helped motivate people and impart things onto people. There are people out there that whether they realise it or not, their whole morals, their whole life stances, you know, impacted by shows and cartoons like that. And that's a good thing. And I suppose the final merit that I want to talk about, you know, of, of shows like this is the, like I said, the impact that the characters within them can have upon people. Not just in, you know, the morals and identifying with characters and stuff, but how to kids especially, you know, especially in the case of shows created to sell toys, because you own those toys, you identify with and become friends with or your toys and if those toys are have a character that you see on screen and that is positive that can be so important as well but it can be important because you have in the case of cartoons as very non-toxic characters po positive role models you know, in these shows. You know, like I said, for the example of the Turtles or the Power Rangers, they were all very well-designed, very well-defined characters, even if they were based on archetypes. But, you know, you could identify with them. You could play with the toys, and you would treat those toys, you know, kids can treat toys like their friends, their confidants, when their real friends aren't around, when they're not at school. Um, and sometimes you can get the male role models in a toy, in, in or in a character, the character that that toy represents, that maybe you don't have in your life. One example I like to use for this is um, Optimus Prime. Now, Optimus Prime from Transformers, I think, is a very, very positive role model. And I think one of the reasons why he is so positive is the characterization given to him by Peter Cullen, the voice actor, uh, who has played him for many, many years from the original cartoon right up through to the modern movies. Peter Cullen's voice as Optimus Prime always struck me. It, it's, it's a heroic voice, most definitely. Apparently he based it on his brother, who was a Marine who served in Vietnam. And he said, you know, it's, it, that's the voice of a hero, as he saw. He based it on a real-life hero that he knew. And the voice is definitely heroic and 
commanding in terms of its presence, but it's never stern. It's never unkind. Optimus Prime has a very gentle timber to his voice. It's a voice that you can feel reassured by. And I do think that's a beautiful thing. That, you know, there there are kids out there who, you know, with with poor male role models in their life, um, you know, even if they have real positive role models as well, like I did, I, I you know, my father was still around. I, I, my father is an amazing man who has Im impacted me a lot. But at the same time, the abuse I was receiving from my stepfather kind of overshadowed that. So having positive rail, positive male role models in the Power Rangers for me, and and Zordon, the leader of the Power Rangers, who again had a similar sort of voice to Optimus Prime, this very calm, gentle reassuring voice it showed me that it's possible to have that sort of presence and that sort of reassurance to to someone I mean the, the Power Rangers when they had problems they didn't go to their parents they went to Zordon so as a kid watching that, you associate the way Zordon acted, the way he dealt with their issues, how he mentored them, and the advice he gave them. That's what has an impact on you. You know, and Splinter did a similar sort of thing with the Turtles, and Optimus Prime did a similar sort of thing with the Autobots. You know, that same... Positive impact ongoing down through the years. And it definitely has an effect. It has an effect on your life when you you hear those role models. Yeah. So I do think there's more merit... To shows like this. To films like this. To cartoons like this. To toys like this. Because I don't think it matters. If something's created to sell toys or not. What matters is. The work put into developing it. On multiple levels. From toy designers. And to, to character artists. To writers. To filmmakers. Because at the end of the day, yes, it may be created to sell toys, but if what's there has no substance in the first place, it doesn't matter how good the toys are, no one's going to buy them. And even, you know, I mean, even when I was a kid, I had turtles, I had 
you know, the, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, for example. And they were they were awesome. I loved them. The thing is, I kept coming back to playing with the turtles, to acting out with my toys. Scenes like them going to Splinter for advice. Or, or coming together and supporting each other as they fought Shredder. But at the same time, I also had, you know, I ended up getting toys from Street Sharks. I ended up getting toys for Biker Mice from Mars, you know, which were these other things that were around at the same time. You know, the similar sort of human-animal-creature fights, whatever. You know, there were loads of them in the, in the early 90s, and... <sighs> But Turtles was one I kept playing with. Once the cool new factor wore off on things like Street Sharks and Biker Mice from Mars, they ended up in a drawer and I didn't really play with them again. I kept playing with the Turtles. I kept playing with Power Rangers. Because there was more to them than just a toy. And the same happened when Transformers came back as Beast Wars. You know, me and my younger brother, we played with Beast Wars because it was the similar sort of thing. There was more to it. It wasn't just... The, the shows weren't just toy commercials. There was something more to them. And that something more was something that you could identify with and it became important. And that's the merit in a show like that. And to the kids above me who had that with He-Man, kids older than me that had that with He-Man, kids younger than me that have had that with Digimon, Pokemon, Yu-Gi-Oh! It's when there's something more to it than just a toy. You know, I've seen it with my own kids. I've seen the impact that something like, you know, the reimagined My Little Pony, The Friendship is Magic. I've, I've I've watched that with my daughter. It's a good show. You know, she's a bit older now. She's not really interested in it anymore. But it's a good show. And I know she enjoyed it. And she got the toys and played with the toys because of that show. Because of the impact it had. You know, my boys have done the same thing when they've watched Power Rangers when that returned. Yeah, shows like this can have a meaning and an impact beyond just being toy commercials. They can have a merit beyond just being a toy commercial. And I think that's the merit in it when it when you see it as more than that. When you are drawn to the characters, the concepts, the positive aspects of it beyond just a cool factor. Because things that are just cool never last. Biker Mice from Mars never lasted. Sure, some people remember it now. But 
you know, you don't remember it for the same reason you remember something like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Similar with the sort of thing like Thundercats. Thundercats is remembered, but it's not remembered as what it was. Because what it was wasn't as entertaining as its contemporaries. Like Transformers and Masters of the Universe. You know, Transformers was the one that ended up getting big budget live action movies. You know, that didn't happen to a lot of it. You know, it didn't happen to GoBots. Because GoBots was just something lighthearted to publicise the toys. Transformers wasn't. There was more to it. It's that that sort of thing. So that's what I think the merit is in these things. That's their merit beyond the toys. So, as a kind of close to all that, because that got a bit deep, um, let's sort of discuss how some of these franchises have managed to stand the test of time beyond their characters and their storytelling. Because some of these things, I mean, obviously the characters and storytelling only lasts for a show while you have the audience. The average audience of a kid's show, I think it's something like, it used to be something like three years that you have a kid invested for before they grow up and move on to other things. Some of these shows and franchises have been, if not constantly going, have been existing as franchises for 25, 30, 35 years now. Some of them 40 years, almost. And, you know, that's important. And there's always a reason why. And I think one of the things that helps shows like this is reinvention. And modernisation. I mean, I've spoken how Power Rangers now adopts the Sentai model of reinventing itself every year. Super Sentai's been going for 45 years now. Power Rangers is 28, nearly 28 years old. And for most of those 28 years, they've changed identities um, every one to two years. Changed the whole cast, the whole concept, the whole core premise um changed all the robots, all the villains, all the heroes. Which is you know, it helps drive the sales of a toy line. But it means that for you know, as much as I may identify with the original Power Rangers there are people who are identified just as much with some of the series that came later. Uh, Power Rangers Time Force, for example, the one that's in my channel logo. I've seen that series. I very much enjoyed that series. But it's not my series of Power Rangers. I still think it's one of the best series of Power Rangers. That's why it's in my channel logo. But it's the first series for a lot of people a lot younger than me. Um, 
Beast Wars, for example, is the Transformers that I watched. You know, I watched that series of Transformers when they reinvented itself. But the trans that's not the Transformers that my my youngest son watches. He watches Rescue Bots and the more modern Transformers series. You know, and the people that are a lot older than me recognise the, the Generation 1 Transformers. So, these things can continue to evolve. And in some cases, they're not driving toy sales anymore. For example, one of the most significant modern reinventions that I can think of is She-Ra. My daughter loves the modern She-Ra series um, on Netflix. There were very few toys associated with that. In fact, I don't think I saw any. It was a Netflix show designed as a Netflix show. And it ran for, I think it's had five seasons. Now, Netflix is notorious for cancelling shows if they underperform, which suggests that She-Ra had a pretty sizable audience, like the Voltron series before it. The Voltron series did have toys, but again, they didn't. They weren't particularly well-selling. You know, we had a brief run on them in the shop that I worked in. Um, but She-Ra, I don't think we've had any toys in at all. But the show is popular despite that. And the show has done some amazing things despite that. Shows like Avatar, The Last Airbender, has a huge following. You know, I, I've watched that with my kids as well. And I don't remember many toys for that when it was out originally. But I know they're bringing it back. That franchise is returning because of the impact it had. You can't dismiss things like this as kids' fair. Now, not everything does that. You know, hardly anyone's chomping at the bit for a return from the Street Sharks or Mighty Max or Dino Riders or things like that. Or Rainbow Bright, Brave Star, you know. People don't want those shows to come back. They want the shows that impacted them to come back. And yes, those shows might come with toy lines, as in the case of the newer Transformers. They might not. Like in the case of She-Ra. And I think that's interesting. I think there's also the potential now as well for... The, for some current shows to have this sort of continuing... Impact over the years. I mean, some shows. I mean, it's mainly mainly preschool shows that I think of. the two, The two biggest examples I can think of now are preschool shows. They're not. They're not targeted at older children like a lot of the shows that w when we were younger were. These are shows that are targeted towards preschoolers and slightly older preschoolers that sort of age. And it's Paw Patrol and PJ Masks are the two big ones that I think of. No, those are toy lines. And those cartoons are very clearly designed to sell those toy lines. 
but both of those have gone for several years already. And Paw Patrol, at the very least, has had a cinema release. But it is cartoony. It's very, very cartoony. And it's very much designed for a younger audience than something like Transformers. But the fact it's lasted as long as it has already... You know, it had its first episode in 2013. So yeah, Paw Patrol's been going a couple of years. It'll be ten years old. That's strange to think of. Now, I don't think many people who originally started watching it are still watching it. But there probably are some kids that are. So... In future years, could we see a revival of Paw Patrol for older children? In the same way that we've seen things like the more modern revivals of Transformers. Or the modern revival of He-Man on Netflix. I mean, the Transformers, uh, the Wolf Cybertron trilogy that's on Netflix. The third series has just dropped. I haven't seen it yet, but I know it incorporates plot elements from Beast Wars and the original Transformers movie in order to capitalise on their anniversaries this year. Because I'm pretty sure this year, I mean, it's 25 years, 35 years since the Transformers movie in 1986. And I believe 25 years since Beast Wars. In 1996. So. There are elements of both of those films. In the storyline for the latest Transformers series. The Masters of the Universe series. That Kevin Smith has done for Netflix. Is designed to capitalise on. The Masters of the Universe anniversary. Which is coming up. I think it's the 40th anniversary. This year or next year. For Masters of the Universe. And that's baffling. You know, the Masters of the Universe toy line has been redone. I could walk into the place I work and buy Skeletor, He-Man, Fisto, Triclops, Merman, Beastman off the shelf. Because we have them. Because those toys have been re-released. And they're using the exact same moulds from 40 years ago. They all come with the original comics, just like they did 40 years ago. And that's insane. That sort of viability in a franchise. You know, Paw Patrol won't be the only exist isn't the only long running preschool series by a long shot. There's the longest running one I can think of is probably Thomas the Tank Engine. Uh or Thomas and Friends as it's now known. And that definitely has its adult fans. I know it does. You know, I, I've read the Railway series books to my kids um, because I grew up on them myself. And, you know, looking online, I know there's adult fans of Thomas the Tank Engine. Just like there is with any property, you can find adult fans. You know, and I remember the original episodes from when I was a kid and I want to show my child those. While at the same time, that franchise is still going. 
Now, very few people who watched it since the beginning are still going to be watching it, but there are some of them. Some of these shows do stay with people for the, you know, a large part of their life. So the same could be true with Paw Patrol and PJ Masks. You know, PJ Masks, for example, they're kids that transform into superheroes. You know, the CW, I think it is in America, is doing a live-action Powerpuff Girls pilot based on the Cartoon Network series Powerpuff Girls, which were originally young girl superheroes, and now they're being shown as, like, young women superheroes. You know, in 10, 15 years, will we see, you know, a series aimed at older kids of the PJ Masks grown up? It wouldn't surprise me if we did, because it's not unheard of. The idea of reinventing like that. You know, Ben 10 had a, a relaunch and a reinvention, which is still doing really well. I, you know, I don't think, I'm, I'm not as wise on the franchise, but I don't think the current Ben 10 series, I don't think the current Ben 10 series is connected to the original Ben 10 series. I might be wrong, but I don't think it is. I think it was a relaunch. So, I think that's going to be the key to the future. Not just the strong characters, the strong storylines, but people putting their best effort in to make a show and not just make it a toy commercial. Even if that show is targeted towards preschoolers, if people put the best effort in to make that show the best it can possibly be, then those shows are going to have an impact. Because the quality will be there. And that's what creates an enduring effect on a person. Not necessarily a fan, but a show that creates an effect on them. You know, so I think there is something that's value in something that's created to sell toys, provided it's done well. It's the same as anything: books, video games, television series, films. Anything that's created well can leave a good impact on someone. So I think just because it was created to sell toys isn't a reason to dismiss any piece of work. Because if people have put the effort into it, it can still be amazing. It can still have an impact on people. It can still leave a legacy. It can still play on people's minds 20, 30 years later. And I think that's a good thing. So, thank you everyone who has listened to this. Um, this episode was a lot more emotional in parts than perhaps I thought it was going to be. Um, so, thank you to everyone who listened. I'm very thankful that you listened to it all. <laughs> um, So yeah, hopefully we're going to have a, a bit of a, a bit less emotional of a time 
next time um, when we'll be discussing the graphic indulgence of adult media. I'm very much looking forward to that episode. That episode's going to be out on the 14th of August, two weeks from today. Um, There are some ongoing events in popular culture um, that I might discuss at some point. Um, But I think for the most part other people on YouTube and people like places like that have done better at discussing the the hot takes more than me I like to think on things and ruminate on them Um, so I'd probably much rather wait until to discuss those until there is more to say if you know some of these things that I'm on about then great um so yeah, I may discuss them in the future, um, but not now, um, especially because some of the incidents in pop culture at the minute, I mean, they're impactful. I'm still struggling with my own mental health and things that maybe were positive for me at some points are now becoming negative and that's horrible and I don't like it. I don't necessarily want to discuss it. So I'm sticking with the current plan for season two at the minute. So that's the next episode. The graphic indulgence of adult media. We'll be discussing things like The Boys, Invincible, Rick and Morty, Game of Thrones, Deadpool, etc. Their content and uh, whether it's justified or not to be so graphic an adult property thank you everyone for listening again take care of yourselves look after yourself look after your mental health wear your masks take your vaccines if you can and yes please look after yourselves and stay safe until the next time my friends Thank you, as always, for joining me here at Gardo Goes Geek. I have been your host, Gardo. If you would like to discuss the topic of this episode or any other episode with me, or would perhaps like to discuss topics that you might like me to cover in a future episode, then, as always, I invite you to reach out and contact me. I can be found at Gardo on Reddit, at Gardo Hedgehog on Twitter, or at Gardo on Instagram. I look forward to any discussions that you wish to bring to me. And until next time, take care of yourselves.